welcome to the Charity Matters Podcast. Mr. Rogers' mother said, always look for the helpers. I'm Heidi Johnson, nonprofit founder, lifelong helper, and your host. I've been interviewing the helpers for a decade with my blog, and I'm so excited to finally be sharing these inspiring conversations with our new podcast. Join me as we learn the challenges and stories of innovators, entrepreneurs, and modern-day heroes who set out to solve the problems of humanity. Today, our guest is Amel Najjar, who is the founder of the Children of War Foundation. I'm excited to share her unbelievable journey and our fantastic conversation. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. It's um, it's been a whirlwind uh, <laughs> couple of weeks, actually. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're joining me today, and I'm so glad that we get to talk about Children of War Foundation. And I'm really excited to hear about everything that's been happening since we last um, since we last met. But more than that, I really want the world to know about you and about your incredible work and what you're doing. So. Before we even start, just tell everyone a little bit about what Children of War Foundation does. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us this platform. So as of 2020, Children of War Foundation has two priority focuses, and that's health and that's education. And our mission is to make these two essential and really fundamental human, basic human rights accessible to anyone from any time, from anywhere. Um, I also think that it's really important to shed light on where we were 10 years ago and how the organization has really evolved since then, if you don't mind, and if you have time. Oh, well, and, and, that's, and really, I think one of the things that's exciting for people to understand, I don't think people always realize that nonprofit founders are entrepreneurs, and starting a business is really difficult, as a lot of people know, but starting a business that serves humanity let alone an international business that serves humanity, um, is a whole other level of entrepreneurship. And so I think what's so exciting for people to hear is kind of the journey, because you don't just wake up and start a nonprofit. There's a lot of things that happen. So, exactly. it's, you know, <laughs> if, to, to put some of those paths, those key stepping stones together for us on the journey that led you to, to starting this, Help people explain, like, where you came from, your background, and why you wanted to do this and how you ended up doing this. Sure, sure. So one thing is, is that when you hear Children of War Foundation, there's, there's an automatic assumption already that we are either diving out of airplanes into war zones or we're hiding in bunkers. <laughs> but that really <laughs> isn't the case. Um, yeah, and and so I, I'd like to just kind of dive into you know day one and kind of give you a a brief history of um, ten years of history of where we started and where we're at today. Um, Great. So that, that comes with um, so ten years ago I had an opportunity to save one child's life and that was a nine year old boy who was a victim of war. And at that time I didn't have experiencing and managing a nonprofit. My only experience um, was uh, was volunteering um, with small organizations and bigger organizations at the time. And at that time, what I had to offer um, that could help this boy was that I knew the region because I had lived there off and on as a child. 
And I also had family and friends in the region who could help me. And then more importantly, I also had access to resources and organizations that could help in Los Angeles. And so Children of War was born for the sole purpose of saving an innocent child who was caught in the crossfire of war. And I helped that one child successfully get to the U.S., secured um, a medical visa, almost nine months of surgical care through my husband, wow. a pediatric surgical, uh, a pediatric surgeon here in Los Angeles. And between the both of us, um, I had my international experience and he had his medical network. And I used that to my advantage. Uh, I used that network to build on to do more. So and once you help one child, you knew that. Now this was, you knew something had happened. Like this was not just one child. You knew this was something bigger. Exactly. I mean, it was something where I had this aha moment where I was like, wow, I had access to these types of resources that could really do good to, for other people. Um, and so putting I, them together is a different yeah. story, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and then I began to coordinate efforts to help one child at a time, and then it grew from not only helping children that were victims of war, but children that were um, victims of poverty, that were born with um, different deformities, as well as children who had migration challenges. And so we did that for about three years, one child at a time. And we moved from one hospital to multiple hospitals to multiple children at a time. And that happened in the span of about three years. Um, and then as you can imagine, over those three years, I learned a lot, right? I mean, it was one, it's very costly to do so. Here in the U.S., you have healthcare expenses that are just <laughs> through the roof. Through the roof, right. Um, I, it's, it's, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that 40% of the bankruptcies in the U.S. are due to health care costs, which is just so unfortunate. Completely. Uh, and then the other challenges with bringing kids here are the liability, the cost of care. And then the other mental challenges is when they go back, sometimes we feel their, we, we heal their physical deformities. But then you have the mental challenges that come with those children that come to Los Angeles or Miami or Boston or New York, and then they go back to like literally hell, right? Right. Um, and so then sometimes you wonder, okay, were they better off not even coming in the first place? And that's wow. really hard to, um, one, sometimes it's really hard to live with knowing these uh, choices and the outcomes. And then two, it's... Um, it makes you think, well, maybe they were just better off the way they were, um, which is really hard and, to. And you know. how, when a, when a child is is sick or has um, a medical challenge, whether it's from war or cleft palate or you know any sort any sort of medical trauma, how would they? How are they finding you initially? And then how? And how are they? I mean, obviously today you're. A, huge foundation and everyone knows you're there, but before in the early days, how did people find you? How did they know to, to find you to get help? Well, I think the name in itself is, I mean, there's a dichotomy in children of war. And so right. when parents go online to find resources or they're so desperate, they are going to, they're, they, they automatically define themselves as a child of war. 
Right. And with Hashem's story, the very first kid that we brought, we got a lot of attention. I mean, we recorded his uh, his journey, and we actually won an Emmy in 2011, um, a, a medical documentary with Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and that gave us a lot of attention. And that allowed for a lot of people to know who we are, um, and that's what really kind of not forced me, but enabled me to be able to have reach to other people that could use um, the support and the resources that I had access to. So after you made the Emmy, was that when you were like, okay, now I got to take this show to the next level. And now how are we going to, which I think as any good business person, you're always asking that question is what's the best way to be most effective, to, to help as many people as you can. But was it that kind of a pivoting moment in 2011 with the Emmy that you thought, okay, now we need to do something? Not really. Um, I mean, it was helpful, and we, we got a lot of, you know, attention and whatnot. But I think what happened was we continued to do what we were doing because we were just so focused on the mission. Everything else was kind of like icing on the cake, right? But right. just so focused on trying to help these kids that we, you know, could essentially do that other people can do. And then in 2013, on the onset of the Syrian Civil War, I was approached with an opportunity to mobilize a a team of surgeons to head to Jordan and work with local doctors to operate on children with time-sensitive cases, as well as coordinate efforts uh, and offer medical and surgical um, education to the local community. And in 2013, that's when we embarked on our first real international surgical mission where we took seven surgeons, operated on 58 kids in four days wow. at, the, at, at a cost of what would be a third of what it would cost for one child to come to the U.S. Wow. And all the surgeons volunteered, obviously. All the surgeons volunteered. Um, so if you really... If you keep all the politics and all the administrative work out of, you know, what our healthcare professionals have to deal with today, right. at the end of the day, they just want to help people. They right. want to be clinicians and heal people. And we allow just like to do that. Just like nonprofit founders. That's why you and your husband are a good couple. <laughs> you have the same mission to help people. <laughs> Um, and then over the years, we continued. So we mobilized teams to regions, including Haiti and Kenya and Nicaragua and Lebanon, Turkey, and so on. And then we evolved and we sponsored doctors um, um, and, uh, well, junior doctors and then doctors in, in training to come out to the U.S. and observe and train so that they can go back and implement the care, the, the care that they learned in our absence. And then as we continue to evolve, we incorporate more education-centered programming, such as mentoring and teaching through, like, your basic communication platforms. So Skype, so, FaceTime, um, stuff like that that allowed our doctors here and more advanced um, institutions to be able to reach out to these doctors and low-resource. To the doctors. Got it. So what – I mean, I can't even – first of all, I can't even comprehend what it even takes – to mobilize a medical mission, let alone with 58 do- 50, for 58 children and the doctors. And so I can't even fathom, I can't even fathom that. So this question seems so insignificant, but when, like, I mean, what are some of the challenges that you deal with? It's just, I mean, 
to me, that is, that is like, that's like mobilizing. I mean, that's like mobilizing a war as well. I mean, it's literally like, that's a huge mobilization effort for that many people. So I can't even imagine all the coordination that goes into what you do. Well, but what do you think your biggest challenges are? Maybe that isn't it. Maybe you can do that. <laughs> I'm just I mean, super impressed. I mean, that's a pretty, that's the easiest part is those, the surgeons that come in, the healthcare providers, the educators that come in, they come in and that is the easiest part, but it's everything else that is involved into it. And so if, when you look at the 58 kids that had op, had operations, you don't think about the 300 kids that were there originally and the almost 250 kids that we had to reject. Wow. Right? And, wow. And, the, and, and, the, and the lives that have been disrupted and, the, and how some families have probably spent, you know, their whole month's salary to travel from, you know, a, a refugee camp that's five hours away to come and see that international surgeon that they think is going to save their child's life. Right. And then at the end, and then, then you have to turn them away. Right. It's, it's so it's devastating. Devastating. I can't even, I yeah. mean, that's, that's pretty unbelievable. So, I mean, for you, do you think the, what do you think the biggest challenges are? I, I mean, you have, you're, you yeah, have huge well, challenges. I'm sure you're going to, I'm sure you hear this over and over again. <laughs> so our biggest challenge is one, myself and funding. <laughs> yeah. I'm really bad at asking uh, because I'm just so focused on kind of the being in it and on the ground and right. the mission. And we have been volunteer driven for so many years, including myself. Um, right. and I recognize and understand that there are not a lot of people in my position that can do that. Um, and when we have funds and when I'm able to support a program or initiative, um, I do, but that's really not enough to grow and sustain because I'm not going to be here forever. Right. <laughs> Although I wish I right. could, right. Uh, but I'm, I'm well, doing a darn good job. You're doing, <laughs> you're doing a great job. So I'm sure your board doesn't want you going anywhere. That, of that I'm sure. Of exactly. that I'm sure. So, well, I do. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I, so I'm, pretty lucky to have an access to a network to really want to help and really can pull their resources together. Um, and then over the years, what's really made our work possible, because people are like, how can you do so much running like this, right? How is it that you've been able to write so many things? And I, I mean, I have to be fair, but we've had help covering overhead costs supported by partner hospitals and organizations, which may, which has made my life easier and really to where I can still focus on the actual mission and build a right. network of doctors and educators to, to call on. And so now I'm at a point where I have this huge network that I've built in 10 years that are ready, you know, to, and I'm ready to exercise this, these contacts and these networks. But I think, I mean, the challenge is first of all, you are right because nonprofits, it, it, the business model, and I know you have an MBA, the business model is innately flawed, right? Starting a business that relies on the kindness of others is a whole other. It, it's just, it, I don't want to say it's the recipe for disaster, but it's just a miracle that these businesses even run. People are kind and good, and so we we do, we are privileged that we get to witness generosity in our volunteers. You see it in the doctors. You see it in all these people that that help. But but it's incredibly difficult to raise money just to go on every day. I mean, it's not like we're selling something, right? So, and I think the other part of it that you mentioned too is 
you know, we're givers to a point and sometimes to our own detriment. And so we, we go and go and go and there's never enough time. There's never enough money. There's never enough resources. And there's not always enough um, personal fuel to keep us going because we still have, I know you have children, you have a husband, you have a life, and then you have these hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children that I'm sure you think about all the time that need you as well. So how do you keep going when those moments are really, really hard? Like how do you how do you keep going? I mean, I always say, you know, I always say the bucket's heavy and there's not always someone to hand the bucket to. At the end of the day, it's kind of your bucket. And you have to, there's days you're just like, I, I, I can't, I can't do it all. I can't, I can't save everybody. How do you move forward in those moments? What fuels you to do that? Well, so um, first I'm a realist and I'm <laughs> pretty much just as I think I say it as I think it. So um, <laughs> I think what fuels me uh, the most is that my work in what I'm, what I've experienced with children of war is a constant reminder of the life that I had and the life I could have had if it weren't, um, if it were not for the opportunities to be healed, healthy, and educated. Um, and the fact is, and I mean, I, I hate saying this, but the fact is, is that when I feel down or I think my problems are problems, I stop to think about the problems we're trying to solve as an organization and realize that my problems are not really problems. And that really keeps me grounded. Being here in L.A. in this bubble, um, it's right. really, really easy to get sucked into the glitz and glamour um, of right. things and and have complete disregard of what's happening in our world. Mind you, there was a point in my life when I lived in Jordan and I showered once a week to conserve water, lived on minimal resources so that my parents could afford to send my brothers and I to school. Um, and, and they, and my parents struggled as a young couple, um, coming from different backgrounds and cultures. And so I witnessed all of that. And now when I look back, I think about how fortunate I am to have that perspective, although I ran from it, right? Because I, that was what defined me and I didn't want that right. um, coming to the U S and I'm really grateful for, you know, having that perspective now because it's having that perspective is offering so much to so many people now. Um, and, and it's so, a unique perspective. I mean, how many, how, I mean, I'm sure there are people all over the world, but I mean, really to, to live, to grow up in, in, in two worlds, to be, to have one parent and, you know, a U.S. citizen and one in Jordan and to balance between two different cultures. Um, but then to bring it all together to do this. I mean, what it's, it, it's incredibly beautiful and miraculous and amazing that all of that has brought all of this. I mean, it's really, it's pretty incredible. It is. And, you know, you always get questions. How do you, how did you do that? Or how do you do that? It's really not that hard. You have to think about what is it that you know, or you have perspective of, or that you have access to that can make someone's life so much easier. And it's really not that much. I mean, just look around you. Um, so that's how I was be able, that's how I was able to build uh, the network and, and the work that we do with Children of War was just <laughs> the, the just really simple things and you know perspective. Obviously, not a lot of people have the perspective that I do, but um, 
But I, I think you can come from anywhere and have some sort of perspective that could give someone else less fortunate than yourself an opportunity. Absolutely. So one of those, I always say, like, we don't get paid. I mean, and obviously some, some people get paid for this work and some people don't get paid, but we don't do this work for the money. That's pretty much abundantly clear. There's no one who's gotten into the nonprofit space um, to get rich. That's just really not usually the MO. We get in it to serve, to help, to heal, to make, to help humanity. And we get paid in kind of different ways. But what are those paydays like for you when you either – witness a moment of grace or or something happened and it's not that you'd say like oh i just did that or i just helped save that child but but what are those moments that you know it's a payday you're like this is why i do this work what what does a moment like that look look like for you when you know that you've gotten paid so to speak right um for me it's when i witnessed how saving one child's life could alleviate suffering to a whole family it's a rippling effect right and in 2020 now, I'm even more motivated. I mean, people think, oh, my God, COVID-19, the world is, like, gone forever, right? But <laughs> I'm even more motivated now because you have, like, innovation and advancements in technology where we can do so much more, so much good to so many more people at any time, at anywhere. Um, and um, and so that's back to your question. Um I've seen the good that it does, and um, and for selfish reasons, I mean, yes, it makes me makes me feel good about myself. But um, <laughs> again, I have to give myself a reality check and and um, and just think about it in terms of you know what this looks like in the future. Right, because it isn't it isn't it isn't an ego thing. It's not about that. It's about it's about the work. And most nonprofit founders don't want to talk about themselves ever. They want to talk about the work. So if we're talking about the work, since that's what people are more comfortable talking about usually. My, um, I have a love-hate relationship with the word impact. Um, nonprofit founders and nonprofits do in general. It's great that we have, you know, ROIs and that we're held accountable and that we're showing people where their investments are made and the good that we're doing and all these numbers. But then when you tell the story of saving that one boy's life, I mean, how do you measure the impact of that? There's no measurable, right, on that. So, if you were to define the impact of what you think um, Children of War has been or is, what does that look like for you? I mean, is it a, is it a story? Is it a number? What do you, what do you think? What do you like oh, to tell people that I your impact is? In every which way you want. So <laughs> whatever many ways you want to give it. I mean, you know, so I think it's, first of all, thank you for giving me this opportunity because one thing that we've been lacking is to really kind of tell our story in a very like raw in real um, way. And just to give you an impact, just kind of give you an idea of how really, even though we've done a lot, how really grassroots with far reach we are, right? Last year, 2019, we raised, just in Children of War, about $130,000 in monetary contributions. Okay. We had a little over 300000 in in-kind contributions. And just with that, right, not with, you know, the other uh, overhead costs that were covered by our partner organizations and whatnot, we were able to provide over 600 medical procedures. We wow. launched a school on the Syrian border for 90 kids. We established two new bases, one in Kenya and one in Uganda, and we sponsored two doctors for training and observation. And so when you talk about impact, I mean, those numbers are... Pretty, staggering 
Yeah. You're a good investment. <laughs> that's a really good ROI. That's a really good. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's unbelievable. Okay, and I know that you are have been working and we're talking about technology a little bit because you know, I think the one thing with with um with our line of work is that we always want to help more people, serve more people. And so you mentioned technology is a way that you're able to now reach more people and help more kids. So tell me a little bit about how you guys are using technology and that you're not on a plane every um every few days, weeks gallivanting all over the globe. So how are you guys using technology to be more impactful? Well, first of all, Heidi, if I could Heidi, if I could jump out of an airplane and dive into a war zone, I would. Just of course you would. <laughs> I wouldn't. Kind of I'm glad you went. <laughs> I can I know I can tell that. <laughs> I mean, a couple of things. I'd love to chime you in on like our latest projects. Um and one is that over Thanksgiving weekend I pretty much saw the first steps of my, what I call my moonshot vision, where uh, our team literally made history um, and successfully deploying the first live real-time remote virtual triage in a humanitarian setting in a fragile context by using really high-tech technology, um, augmented reality smart glasses, and a virtual health uh, health platform, which was made by Hippo Technologies for Children of War. Um, on top of which, our team covered over 70 miles in one day, rough weather, along with COVID-19 restrictions, assessing wow. and triaging children in isolated refugee encampments, communities along the Syrian border. Um, and then we had 11 surgeons across the U.S. from three different countries, U.S., Turkey, and Jordan, come together um, to treat and consult children. Uh, uh, some of these children had really time-sensitive cases. And mind you, these families, some of them, you know, uh, Syrian refugees, Yemeni refugees, refugees from Sudan even, um, they are unable to f- afford um, specialized or expert medical um, care. They haven't been able to leave their home because of the COVID restrictions. And they don't even have enough money to get down to the main city where there are doctors, right? Wow. Um, wow. And so we made that happen live. Uh, we're pretty for Like I said, the, our network, we have, I like to, we have the most awesome network in the world because these doctors, they really want to help, and they're willing to wake up at, even at 1 in the morning <laughs> be able to consult a child on the Syrian border. That's so, so they're doing it remotely now. You're doing so you're not traveling the surgeon. The surgeons are working with the doctors there and using technology to do surgeries. That I mean, and then the plan. And so what we and before that we're we've been troubleshooting and testing different programming where we'd like to train doctors through AR technology, through VR immersive experience technology. But the whole idea is to be able to access healthcare from anywhere, anytime, um, right. anywhere in the world. Um, and, and then also be able to build capacity in these regions, right? Where we can teach local healthcare professionals. Because if you look historically, if you look at what's been happening 
all these organizations, they've been plugging holes into a, I call it plugging holes into a sinking ship, right? You go in, you put a Band-Aid on, you heal some kids, and you leave, and then they're waiting for the next organization, or they're waiting for you to come back. Um, right. And that's been happening for, like, almost 100 years. And so if you keep looking at these low-resource regions, why are they still low-resource regions, right? And in healthcare in particular, in these regions, when you have medical students that go out to the UK or Canada or the US or Europe and they go to medical school and they train, 95% of them do not go back. They stay, they, they stay where stay. they are. And that's a right. huge brain drain. And then the few that do go back, they go back into private practice. They market themselves as a foreign trained doctor from an advanced institution of which only the upper echelon of the community can afford and everybody right. else has to go to the local stuff. Suffers, right. And so how do you change that? How do you change the model? Continued reliance. Yes, the model, right, is that you have to actually attack the heart of the problem, and that's building the health care infrastructure, the education. Instead of plucking these individuals out, these community leaders, right, the doctors, right, take them to Stanford and Harvard and everywhere else, we're actually going to bring those resources there remotely and in person. But right now we're, we're bringing the, we're bringing access to these uh, experts in this education remotely. And, and so hopefully at some point we'll create this shift, right? Where the, That's will huge. their own, they will invest in their own human capital, right? And build that capacity there. So I mean, that, we're, that's a huge, that you're taking on a big one. So if I ask you, would you dream anything for Children of War Foundation? You keep, obviously, you, you keep dreaming bigger each time. Obviously, it started with one child, which is how everything starts. And then it was 58 children. And then it's hundreds of children. And now it's remote surgeries that you're doing and education. So, I mean, if you could dream any dream, what was, what, it, what is it? What does that look like? Okay, so I'm the type that it's either go big or go home. <laughs> it's go big, I can tell. <laughs> my, and this may sound really ridiculous, and I don't care because I, that's how I started in the first place when I said I'm going to Iraq to bring a kid to L.A., which sounded ridiculous at the time, but look what's happened. Um, but my, my dream is to be the organization, Children of War Foundation, that drives change and influences world peace, leading to less poverty, by providing that access to health and education, which is the ultimate key to better decision-making, more compassionate people, healthier people who want to contribute to their communities, people who have something to live for, and overall contribute to raising a future generation that understands what it is to learn to be knowledgeable, to have choices, to be healthy, and to give back. That's my dream. Amen, sister. Holy guac. That's, that's, that I think is the biggest dream that I've had in my hundreds of dreams because it started with world peace. World peace. Right? I mean, yeah. But it's, if anyone could do it, it oh. is you. I mean, holy guacamole. World peace. You have all these politicians and diplomats and out there, you know, hobnobbing and shoulder rubbing and everything else and all this ridiculous stuff happening. And, but it's so simple. If you look at where 
chaos is happening and war, where war has kind of started or where there are these economies in these regions that people are just so poor, uh, is that they have nothing to live for, right? right. And they are not educated. They're not log- knowledgeable. They don't have other choices besides some, you know, extremist type of religious, you know, education or not the their same. option right their options are minimal right minimal. and so <laughs> you wonder why you have like whole communities or these young boys that are going and joining these crazy extremist groups and harming themselves and harming people around them it's because one is they're not healthy obviously um and they're not educated they they right. don't know that there are other options out there and right. these are so fundamental, so right. fundamental. Well, and they're looking, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar to the gang mentality here when there's yep. poverty, there's no family structure, there's, then there's all they have, their family they turn to is a gang or they turn and, you know, in this case, they, they join a rebel group, but it's the same thing on a, just on a different level and a bigger level. And they have a lot bigger, um, guns and artillery than they do, you know, in the streets of LA, but it's the same exact premise happening on a much bigger scale. And it's, and it's devastating. But what I love that you said besides the world peace part, which I think is awesome too, is that raising a generation that gives back because I, it's so critical. I mean, obviously there's so much brokenness and there's, there's, there's so much, but if, if people, children, cultures adopted a mentality of sharing the gifts you have. I mean, you said it earlier, like what do you have access to that you can do? What gifts you have that you can give? I mean, in raising a generation that just identifies their gifts and figures out how to give it back, whether it's playing a violin in an old folks home or organizing a medical troop, you know, crew that goes to a war zone and deliver surgery. I mean, we all have them, right? And the people don't even think that they do and that they have anything to give is always what's surprising to me. Right. Exactly. Everybody has something. Everyone has something. So what do you think, I mean, your life lessons have been that you've learned since you started this? I mean, this, this is, I mean, there's a a decade you have done incredible work, but there's got to be some lessons you learned along the way. There are. And I want to try to keep this as simple as possible. Um, and, um, and it was, there, there, were hard lessons to be learned for sure. But, um, first is that you can't help everyone because if you get, you know, frustrated and I've been there, I've been in that, I've been in that place or angry or sad because you couldn't do it. You have to understand that you can't help everyone, right? You can't change the world alone. That's really important, but you can change someone's world alone. That's, that's the best experience. That's like one of the best things that I've learned so far. Um, and so if people have that kind of mentality, like being okay with, okay, I can't solve everything and I just need to slow down. And what is it that I can alone do for one other person that can change their world? Um, and that, and that in itself has a rippling effect. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And that, I mean, and that's the, that's the whole, that's it. Like, really? Right? 
I mean, that's the Holy Grail. That, to me, that's, that's what it's all about. That's why we do this. I mean, and it's, and it's addictive because it wasn't addictive. We wouldn't, we wouldn't still be doing this. We wouldn't work these long hours. You wouldn't have been up in the middle of the night doing international phone call. Um, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't work as hard as we work if we didn't get such joy in, in giving and in changing people's lives. I mean, it's not as if exactly like you said, like, Oh, I've just done. It's not about I. That's never about I. That's not. That's not what this is about. But when when you see the connections come together and you see those moments happen, it you just believe in in a bigger sense of goodness and purpose. I think mm-hmm. absolutely. And and that's I think what fuels you, especially when you have to deal with the challenges that you have to deal with every day, which is huge. So how do you think you've changed since this started? I mean. You know, you were just a baby when it started. You were, you know, you were just out of college. You were young when you started this. Not that you're not young now, by the way. I'm not saying that. But in 10 years, like, what, how do you think you've changed? How do you think you're, you're, you're different now than you were then? Um, so I've never really put it out there in this way, but I think I've changed to really embrace everything that has defined me that I didn't want to define me, right? I'm embracing who I am. And that allows me to fight for people who are also deserving because when I look back at it, I was deserving too. And so I've, 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 I've learned to appreciate the differences in everyone. Um, it's been a real, um, eye opener, um, and learning experience, meeting people from all over the world. And although I've gone through some really tough and horrible things, um, whether it's, you know, through my own experiences or through, you know, what I've seen out there kind of boots on the ground myself in the past 10 years, um, I think that this journey has made me or has changed me to be someone that's really determined and really hopeful because I've seen the good out of it. I love that. I hope we all need a little bit of hope right now, don't we? Uh, Absolutely. We all need hope. And I think right now it's one thing people are clinging to, right? They're clinging for hope. They're clinging for goodness. They're clinging for stories like yours where, you know, good wins. And even though something bad happens and these kids, someone's coming in and giving hope to them and their families and their children. And you're, doing that and children of war foundation is doing that in so many ways. And I mean, that's, that's about as good as it gets in my book. I mean, that, that is, that's what it's all about. And I think that hope comes from being reminded that people are good. And I think we just don't see enough of it these days. So I'm so glad that you shared your story, but so tell us how we can support you, fund you, find you, your, all of your, Instagram, your social handles, your website, which I'm sure has a big donate button on it. Yes, it's right in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Give us all of that. So it's pretty easy. I mean, if you go on, you know, whatever portal you want to, the World Wide Web, and type in either a hashtag COWF, which is for stands for Children of War Foundation, 
or you go to COWF.org, or you just type in Children of War, and we're pretty much will come up <laughs> at the top there. <laughs> um, there's um, opportunity to go and donate, which we really, really could use and appreciate. Um, you can follow us on social media at Children of War Foundation, or just, again, look us up by hashtag COWF. Um, and what's really important to stress is that, or to, you know, make a point out of, is that we – don't put funds into marketing. Um, and so any any support in terms of followers or sharing our stories um, just because you like them or you feel passionate about it, um, that's, that's really helpful. Even if you can't donate, I think just sharing our story um, is really helpful and that it could inspire someone else to make change as well. That's beautiful. Thank you, Emil. I mean, I just can't think of any um, any more inspiring, amazing journey than yours. It's just, and you give me hope, and I think you give a lot of us hope because it's just so beautiful when someone takes their life to make other lives better. You're making me all emotional. I'm getting all crying. I'm not even a glass of wine. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. And I just think that the world needs more more stories like this and more people doing the great work you guys are doing. And I'm really excited for this next chapter um, for all of you, because I think it's really, really exciting. Thank you. Yes. I'm, I, we have now, I think our moonshot kind of vision is coming to fruition. So it's time to get out there and get busy, busier than we were. (laughs) Next on the list, world peace. Exactly. That'll be our next conversation. So, Mel, tell us how you solve world peace. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm waiting for it. It'll happen, and I can't wait to have it. And I can't wait to have it. Thank you so so much. So excited, and um, I'm really looking forward to um, sharing your videos and all of your work and everything, also on the website. So it'll all be there with all this information. So if people want to find it, they'll be able to find all of it at CharityMatters.com as well. Thank you. Thank you for having us and letting us share our story. Absolutely. My pleasure. Truly, truly, truly. Absolute gift to all of us. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Charity Matters podcast. I really enjoy talking to Amel Najjar about what it takes to start a business that truly changes people's lives. I think her comment about you can't help everyone, but you can change one person's world alone was so inspiring and true. To learn more about these modern day heroes and entrepreneurs, or if you'd like to reach out to us, visit us at charity-matters.com or connect with us on Instagram at Charity Matters. If you enjoyed our conversation, we would love it if you shared this with your friends and family, because together we can make a difference. One small act of kindness at a time.